In our ecclesiology class, we offer from time to time, both in Growing Disciples and in the uh, Bible Institute, we study the church, the doctrine of the church. It's a neglected doctrine among evangelicals. We, we do pretty well, the study of God and Christ and Bible, um, salvation. When it comes to the church, uh, evangelicals don't have as well of a defined doctrine, and so it ends up being neglected. One of the important questions we ask is, what is the mission of the church? And the New Testament is really very clear about the answer to that question. It is to make disciples of all the nations. You already heard reference, the Great Commission from Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go into all the world, or even better, as you're going into all the world, make disciples of all the nations. It mentions baptism uh, as the public testimony that I'm a believer in Jesus. Um, it mentions the importance of teaching the disciples, that really the way to build disciples is to teach and teach and teach them until their thinking is very different from the way the world is and they've embraced God's perspective on life. Acts 1.8, the very beginning of Acts, as Jesus is launching birth of the church, the mission, he says to the apostles, you will be my witnesses. And he outlines these concentric circles emanating out from Jerusalem to the very farthest part of the world. It's what the church is here for, to be a witness for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all of the life that goes with that. As you read in the epistles and you read about the doctrine of the church, one of the greatest epistles on what the church is about is Ephesians. And in the middle of Ephesians and Chapter 3, it talks about how the church is the very body of Christ, and so the church is there to display Christ to the world, that if the, the world wants to see uh, God, they have to look to Christ, and if they want to see Christ, they have to look to the body of Christ to see Christ's church in action, displaying the glory of Christ in all of his facets, his love, his holiness, his justice, how believers relate to one another in this community these communities that are scattered as lights throughout the world. The book of Acts and then the New Testament letters reveal this mission in motion. It's ongoing. It, it takes off, it runs, and it does well throughout the New Testament. 2,000 years later, we're still part of the same mission. Um, every church is supposed to stay anchored to that past, not change the mission, not deviate, but remain faithful to it. We plant churches today, just like back then, um, we expand the gospel throughout the whole world, and we keep doing it until Jesus comes back. That would be the end of the age. We're not there yet. We evangelize the world. We edify the saints. We exalt God, sort of the three E's, if you like it that way, evangelism, edification, and exaltation. We have a ministry where we build each other up, edification, where we witness out in evangelism, and where all of it is to please God, minister to him in our exaltation or our worship. However, throughout church history, many churches have not made this their purpose. They have not made this their mission. They may have started well, but other things began to become pressing on them, depending on what their situation was wherever they were. They succumbed to pressure to take on other causes, to develop other agendas, something that they thought was more expedient, something some of the leaders or some of the people in the congregation thought, you know, this is a very good thing for us to be doing too. And it may have began with good intentions, but it knocked that church off, uh, off of its proper pathway. Jesus left the church, though, with the 
I would call it the most blessed work that anybody could be given. Out of all the work we do in the world, and we Protestants believe that every legitimate occupation in the world is sanctified unto God, no matter what you're doing, um, you can do it under the Lord and give Him glory. There's no really such thing as a secular job. What you do, you dedicate to God. If you're washing dishes, you do that for God. It's sanctified. It brings God glory. If you're an administrator, uh, a leader of some kind um, out in the world, that's your occupation. You find a way to offer that to God as a service to Him. All of it is sanctified. But there is no greater work in the world than the work of the church. It's it's uh, the work that God wants us doing. It's a powerful work. It's an effective work to accomplish what God wants it to do. God is not going to save everybody. Uh, we don't believe in universal salvation. God has chosen some before the foundation of the world. He predestined them. And as the gospel goes out, who is it that's going to believe the gospel? And that's easy to answer. Those who are elected are going to be given the power and the insight to be able to see the truth of the gospel and respond in faith. And so the elect are the ones that are going to end up believing the gospel and they're going to be saved. They're going to be brought into a new community, the church. We're also part of the spiritual kingdom of God. And so we're having an increasing population that one day is going to fill the fully manifested kingdom of God on earth when the Lord Jesus, the King of Kings, returns. And so we're populating as citizens that kingdom and getting more and more ready to fill that out. As, as church history goes on, more and more people come into the kingdom. And when the Father says, Time's up, then time's up. The Lord Jesus will get off of his throne next to the Father in heaven, and he will return with his mighty angels in flaming fire, as it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, dealing out retribution to those who do not obey God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those that do not believe and do not obey will receive the penalty of eternal destruction. The rest of us will inherit this kingdom, will be part of it. That's the purpose of the church and the church age. Not that difficult, really, in terms of figuring out what to do. We were given the best work. We were given the most important work. We were given the most moral work. Nothing is more righteous to spend our time on. There is no more noble cause than any group of people could be given. Today, I just want you to see that again. I have to confess, as we preach through Acts, it's kind of hard to keep coming up with different ways to get you to look at an historical text. Because a lot of it is kind of the same thing. They went out, they preached the gospel, people got saved, the church expanded. And I, I want to I keep emphasizing that to you, but getting you to look at it from different angles so that as we're going through Acts, we have it ingrained into us. This is what the church is. This is what the church does. And we continue that to the best of our ability in our age as well. So we are at the end of Acts 14, really kind of halfway through the book now, after what's it been, seven years, uh, halfway through the book. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's been like three or something. But I'm excited about getting into chapter 15, by the way, because we're going to read about the very first church council, universal council, and we're going to learn why does the church need council, what was this council about, and I think it's a, a powerful study there in Acts 15. In fact, I think the, the Acts 15 is kind of the heart and center of the book of Acts. But we're still in Acts 14. We'll pick up with verse 19 and read to the end of the chapter. Uh, Acts 14, 19 to 28. I'll read it for you. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. 
After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there, they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. So here we learn about missions again, or the mission of the church, a vital labor, a labor, not just the missions committee, but every believer in every church is to be involved in. I cheated a little bit. I looked back at my old sermon notes, and I found some words that I preached when we sent off the Reesmans back in August of 2016. I was like, oh, I wonder what I said back then. It was about our involvement in missions. I'll give you a little snippet of it. I said, many who are saved do not seem to grasp the critical work the Lord Jesus left us here on earth to accomplish. Many Christians seem content to be saved, enjoy fellowship at church, sing some songs, punch the clock at work, spend time with their families, but not perform much of a service to extend and build Christ's church. Most of their time and energy and resources are poured into building their own lives down here. Steve and Lisa have set an example for you to follow. They have chosen to put God's interests ahead of their own and follow the will of God sacrificially to serve Christ's kingdom. They are the first family who have left to the mission field from our Hope Bible Church. We need to support them well, end quote. Well, maybe even today's message will prick our conscience and motivate us to support them and others better than we've been doing. Uh, Not just for the missionaries, but our local evangelists and any other work that we do to spread the gospel around here. So for an outline today, if you like taking notes, here are four, I'm going to call them motions or actions, if you like that better, four motions of missions work. There won't be anything uh, brand new here. I think it'll just reinforce what you understand missions work to be, but the point is we are to be committed to them. Four motions of missions work we all need to be committed toward. I'm going to give them as we go along. Motion number one is advancement. Sort of uh, being on offense is another way of putting it rather than on defense. The church is here to advance, to march forward. Advancement. Look at verses 19 and 20. There it says, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Verse 20. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. Now, at first glance, it doesn't look like they're being advanced. It looks like he's being stoned and killed, and uh, they're playing defense. But hang in there, I'll explain myself. Some time has passed away since verse 18, when Paul and Barnabas Remember, they had to restrain the crowds because they thought they were gods that came down and they were making sacrifices to them and all of that. Well, the hostile Jews from Antioch and Iconium seemed to be keeping track of Paul's travel. And we remembered their terrible persecution in the earlier part of chapter 14. 
They're people that we would call today, we'd, we'd probably label them as religious zealots. And um, they viewed this new message that, remember, is coming along in Jewish circles. So Christianity is not this separate religion yet in their minds. It's kind of flowing along the Jewish lines. It's hitting from synagogue to synagogue. And they think of themselves as the pure Jews. And they're hearing about this, you know, this Yeshua raised from the dead and all. That's not their message. They're into Moses and circumcision. And so they're keeping track of Paul. And they're saying, what is this guy doing? And now they're actually following and making sacrifices to go where Paul is going and to, to get rid of the guy to get rid of his voice, to get rid of his preaching. And that's what, they're, that's what they're doing. Notice most of the opposition to the gospel of Jesus at this early stage in the church was not coming from the Romans. You got in your mind, the Romans threw the Christians to the lions and all that. Ain't happening yet. It's the Jews or the more zealous brand of Jews. This probably refers mostly to the leadership of the Jews, not your common guy. They hated the gospel. They were following in line more with the high priests in Jerusalem and the Sadducees, and they liked their position in the world. They liked the influence they had with Rome. They didn't like that being interfered with, and they didn't like what the Christians were doing. So they tried to stamp them out. And of course, who is it that people persecute first? And the answer is they always go after the preachers. Yeah, they always go after the preachers. And uh, us preachers always want to know when the persecution happens, who's going to be protecting us and who's going to be running? Because uh, we're the ones they go after first. Well, Paul knew that. He was a very courageous man, far beyond my courage, I can tell you that. And uh, what an example he is. We're going to see that in a second here. These Jews understood that if they were going to get rid of this Christian message, this Yeshua, then they had to go after the leaders. And then they needed to get help. They maybe were not quite influential enough. So we've heard about them uh, getting support from some of the more influential people. I mentioned some of the very rich women in certain cities, or they would go and they would appeal to the Romans to get involved in something the Romans didn't really want to be involved in and try to bring pressure to bear upon the church to get them quiet. Now, again, this does not look like the church is advancing, but, but playing defense here. But please remember the overall context. If we were to rewind back to Acts 13, we would see it was the Holy Spirit in the city of Antioch uh, near Palestine that said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul unto the work which I have called them to. And the prophets there prayed and they prophesied, they laid hands on them and sent them out. That's going on offense. They went to Cyprus, they preached the gospel there and had success. Then they hit the mainland, what we call today modern day Turkey, the Galatian region back then. And they were preaching the gospel. And as they're preaching the gospel, the word of God was spreading and it was penetrating pagan territory. And so yes, the church was advancing. Yes, the word of God was advancing. Yes, what Jesus said about you being my witnesses will go on and on. That was happening. And so it was spreading it out. It wasn't dying in Jerusalem. It was running and spreading and having power. And so the church was winning. The church was advancing, although they were suffering some casualties, you might say, as well. Well, that's the mission. We are to be on offense. We are to think of the mission of the church as, well, who do we serve? We serve the King of Kings. What did Jesus say after he was raised from the dead? He came to the disciples and before he gave the Great Commission, he said, all authority in heaven on earth, imagine that, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. That's greater than the emperor of Rome. You agree? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go there, therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Tell them I'm the king. Tell them to obey me. I'm the one that's going to come back. 
I hold the title deed to planet Earth. You go tell them I'm coming and now is the time for them to repent. I will pardon their sins. We're, we're going out advancing that message ahead of Jesus returning. Remember, they didn't know Jesus was not going to return in the first century, right? And when the second century came, they didn't know he wasn't going to return in the second century either. Third century, fourth century. What century are we up to now? 21. Well, how do we know it's not our century, right? I mean, there's a lot of prophecies that seem to be lining up. I'm not predicting a date. But who knows? It's more likely to happen now than back then, right? We're closer now than they were then. And so that's the message. We are on offense. We are giving people an opportunity to repent, to turn away from a life of sin, worshiping other gods, living for money, living for their pleasure. Turn away from that now before it's too late. And the king will pardon all of your sin. Those are the terms of the king of kings. And he's coming back. And we have that message. And when we ourselves are not speaking that message, we're giving that message to someone else, training them and saying, go out and say that on our behalf. Here's the money. Here's our support. Here's our prayers. We're with you. And it's all togetherness in that partnership. Well, that's exciting. We keep moving in the new and new territory and give the gospel to more and more people, even after centuries. This is the work and mission of the church. As the new gospel message comes in, all of the old ingrained religions in a region have to be uprooted and gone. And when that happens, there's conflict. Penetrating areas influenced by false messages, doctrines of demons is hard, hard work. And often it's most dangerous for those on the front lines. Here in America, we sort of passing the Christian time where there was Christianity and now people are abandoning faith in God, in scripture. They don't have a biblical worldview anymore. They have a secular atheistic worldview. And we battle that in so many places. The universities bombard our people with things they would call science that aren't even proven science. And their religious beliefs are openly attacked and biblical Christianity is always being slandered. Well, in Africa, it's the same thing. It might mean not exactly the same thing. There are different isms. There are different false teachings. But the church, no matter where it goes, is going to run into that. We support missionary in Spain. Do they have false teaching there? Oh, yes. Ecuador. What about down there? Oh, yes. Um, one of the local pastors, when I went down there, said, you in America don't really know what pure Catholicism is. Down here, we evangelical pastors are afraid to say anything against the Catholic Church without you know, tremendous reprimands that come to them. They were frightened and intimidated. We also support folks in Chile, and they all have something that if they get too loud and too influential, uh, it'll be, persecution will be stirred up against them. There are always forces at work to silence biblical Christianity. Now, false forms of Christianity, they'll work just fine along with the world. It's the same spirit. Have no problem if you choose this way to go to hell or that way to go to hell. The demons don't care about that. But when you give them the light of the gospel and the truth, that's when they will attack. And they'll use whatever they can, even in our own land, whatever laws, whatever rich people, whatever means to try to suppress the voice of the church. They believe they're doing something that is morally superior to what, to what we are doing. They believe Either they're doing good or they're serving God. They themselves are deceived. These Jews back then thought they were serving God. 
By the way, the Apostle Paul, when he was persecuting the church, my, how things have flip-flopped, right? Remember back, Saul was ravaging the church, chapter 8. What did he think? He thought he was serving God. He, he thought he was right. He thought he was doing something moral. And Jesus appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, what are you doing? It's hard for you to kick against the goads, but you're going to be my witness. He had to completely turn him around. Now, Saul is the one being persecuted by people that think they're doing right, but they're wrong. This is really amazing. Now, the climax of this persecution in this region, if you really want to look, okay, the persecution breaks out here and there. The climax of it, I think, Luke is trying to tell us in writing Acts was the stoning of the Apostle Paul, the stoning of Paul. They took the main spokesperson, Paul. They wanted to shut him up, and he wouldn't. <laughs> they chased him around. They tried to use people of influence, do whatever they could, and they just couldn't get this guy to be quiet. So what did they do? They put him out there somewhere outside. They gathered as many people as they could, and they performed capital punishment on him in their view. Stones are readily available everywhere in the world. They picked up rocks and heavy stones, not one or two of them, but a whole bunch of them, and they began hurling stones after stone after stone at the poor Apostle Paul's body, hitting him in the head, hitting him in the chest, hitting him in the back, I imagine, hitting him all over. What a terrible and a bloody kind of a scene this would be. Their intent was to kill him. They wanted him dead. Pelt him until he was gone. In Paul's case, they thought they had accomplished it. They dragged him out of the city, threw his body somewhere. He looked dead to them. They probably did something like this. Finally, they walked off. And here, just to pause before we talk about what happened next, just to note that the great apostle Paul was not the kind of leader that said, you go do the dirty work and I'll sit here in the comforts. The general was on the front lines with his soldiers and he was the first casualty that there would be. Paul was willing to give up his life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what's important, in life, here it is. When I ask you, what are you willing to die for? Hopefully you're hearing something. This is, this is something to die for. The gospel of Jesus Christ is something to give your life up for. That's not a secondary issue. We are to believe it, study it, proclaim it, defend it, and if necessary, die for it. And he did it. Paul mentions this incident in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, when he writes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. He remembered. He would never forget this his whole life. This was the one and only time this man was stoned. To the Galatian churches, when he was beyond this, and he was writing back in Galatians 6, 17, when people were arguing with him, at the end of that letter, he wrote these words, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. What did he mean by that? Probably means he still had the scars from that stoning on his body. And if you ever question his commitment to the gospel, just look at his body. Paul recounts how bad the persecutions got. This is his first missionary journey. He's got more to go. And maybe the worst, maybe the worst, was right here in the first. 
He writes about it in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11. He says, what persecutions I endured. But then something unexpected, ha unexpected happened. Paul laying on the ground. Maybe even the disciples thought he was dead, but he got up. <laughs> he was still alive. And he entered the city, presumably without any of the hostile Jews knowing what had happened. Now, some have thought and taught that this was a resurrection from the dead by Paul. They've even connected it to an interesting statement Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 2, that Paul was caught up to the third heaven at one time in his life. Now, you're like, wait a minute, three heavens? I don't know what that is. Well, the first heaven in uh, Jewish and Greek thinking was what we would call the atmosphere. The second heaven would be what we would call space or where the stars are. The third heaven is what we would call heaven. It was the third heaven or heaven. He was caught up into a place that in the physical body, you're probably not able to go. But there he says, I don't know whether I was in my body or out of my body. He said it was such a surreal experience. But the um, problem with that is that took place 14 years before Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, according to his own words, which would mean that would be 42 or 43 AD. And that's too early for this incident. So the timing doesn't fit. Luke makes it clear that Paul only appeared to be dead here. In fact, Luke uses the term supposing, namidzo, in verse 19. You do a little word study on that term and how Luke uses it. And by the way, when you do a word study, you always start first with the author and how the author uses that so you understand his peculiarity and how he uses that term. And you see that that, that is a note of uncertainty, that Paul was not dead. For example, it's used in Acts 7.25 when it shows Moses supposed something and he was mistaken about it. Or also you can look up Acts 8 and verse 20 or Acts 16 and verse 27 where there were mistaken notions. And so Luke is marking this as they thought he was dead, but he was not. And just to add a little more evidence to this, whenever Luke is recording a true miracle, he always makes it clear that it was a miracle. And here the whole point is to shed doubt that it was a miracle, but to show that it was strange and that the people in the city didn't know what was happening. We would categorize this as a providential event where God protected Paul's life by working more in the minds of the people thinking he was dead, leaving him alone. And God said, no, he's not dead. I got more for him to do. <laughs> Call it a providential miracle if you want, but it's not a great A miracle where the laws of nature were actually changed. And the disciples recognized it. They get up and what do you think those beloved disciples did for Paul? Well, they probably huddled around them and helped them get back into the city, cared for them, gave them something to eat, bandaged up to his wounds, made sure nobody knew you know, where he was, what was going on. And then you think that Paul would have just been put back on a boat and sent home for three years to recover or something like that. No, 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 not Paul. Not this guy. <laughs> this guy, he don't quit. He just keeps going. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures speak of sacrifice for the sake of the mission of the church. Everybody, not just missionaries, not just former missionaries and those on missions committees, not just evangelists. Everybody is here to help the church advance, advance the mission of the church, both locally and abroad. There's really no difference in the mission. Just think of it as concentric circles. We reach out and our first responsibility is right here. And then it's a little further out there. And then it's to the ends of the earth. And we have a responsibility. And since most people in the world live outside of the United States of America, 95% of the world's population, then we have to think less American and we need to think more globally if we want to 
think the way the Lord Jesus thinks in the mission of the church. It's the same mission, plant more churches, establish those churches, make more disciples, evangelize the world, and that is the mission. Now, what is your dedication to that mission? should start with your own local church here. What are you giving here of time, talent, treasures? And then what are you willing to do to use those, to extend it further, to make your life count for that kingdom? In the end, guys, that's all that's going to matter. The kingdoms, kingdoms of this world all are going to what? They're going to end, right? But his kingdom is going to grow and grow and grow in the spiritual sense, permeate all the other kingdoms of the world during the church age, and one day it's going to have the full, visible, powerful, and glorified manifestation right here down on earth after the Lord Jesus returns in that thousand-year millennial kingdom. All of that is very clearly, openly declared in the Word of God, and the neat thing about it is it's not just a commission and a command for us. It's something that Jesus has allowed us to participate in. We get to participate in it. It's a privilege to be involved in a work that's going to go on and on. How terrible it's going to be to show up with empty hands and we say, well, I was busy doing my hobby all the time. Well, I got into my work and worked too many hours. Well, I was into my family too much. And you didn't come up with something to offer the king of kings. I think that's going to be tragic when you were given such opportunity to be dedicated to that mission. All right, that's motion number one. Motion number two. And this is simple evangelism. Look at the last part of verse 20 and into verse 21. Evangelism. It says, The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby, and after they had preached the gospel to that city, we'll stop there, well, and had made many disciples, and had made many disciples, preached the gospel to that city, and had made many disciples, disciples. Notice again, they're always in motion. They're moving geographically. They're not staying put in one town, just like Jesus who went from town to town as an itinerant preacher all throughout Israel. Now they're getting out and they're going town to town, city to city, byway to byway, using those literal Roman roads to get them where they need to go, using some common language of the day in order to be able to speak, taking advantage of what was there in front of them and using it. And the church is in motion. The mission is in motion. And what are they doing? Preaching the gospel. See it there? Preaching the gospel. We've seen the term gospel already in the book of Acts. In Acts 8.25 it says, They had spoken the word of the Lord, and it equates the word of the Lord with, We're preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Back when the gospel was reaching out in that area. In Acts 14.7 it says of Paul and Barnabas, They continue to quote, preach the gospel. You can also look back to verse 15. The gospel is the message of the mission, and the gospel is the good news. It is what we proclaim here. It's outlined in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and following, where it says, I delivered to you the gospel. He says that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, and that he appeared to many after he was raised. And those four acts of the Lord Jesus are all according to the scriptures. They were all prophesied. Jesus did them, they have meaning, they have result, they have effect, and all of that proclamation is the good news for the world. Yes, the birth of Jesus fits into that, but the more important point is not that Jesus was born, but that what he accomplished through his life, death, burial, resurrection, then appearing from the dead and being raised up into heaven, all of that accomplished something. What is that? Saving our souls from hell, saving our souls from the wrath of God. Now all we have to do as a work is to believe on Jesus who did 
the work of salvation for us. That's good news. When someone else does the work for you, that's good news. When someone else offers their body to, to be killed and to die and to bleed so that you don't have to face the wrath of God, that's good news. And that is what the gospel is. If there's no preaching of the gospel, nobody hears about the good news, they can't respond in belief and they can't join in with the kingdom. Keep your finger in Acts 14 and turn one book to the book of Romans a minute to show you one of the most famous evangelism and missions passages in the New Testament. Romans 10, verses 14 and 15, if you turn there. Romans 10, verse 14, Paul writes, How then will they call on Jesus in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Jesus whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Verse 15, And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news and of good things. Do you see all of that? People are supposed to believe in the Lord Jesus, but they can't believe if they don't hear, and they can't hear if someone doesn't preach, and the preachers can't get out there if someone doesn't support them and send them. That's connectivity. That's the church working to advance the gospel. That's the preaching of the gospel as part of missions. Who, are, who have the best and the most beautiful feet on the planet? Answer, those who bring good news, right? Those are the best feet on the planet. When you are hearing from someone that all of your sins and all of your moral failures, every last one of them can be forgiven. You can have eternity with God in paradise. All you have to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then that's good news. Believe in him as your Lord and Savior. That's good news. And so we need preachers to do that. All right, flip back to Acts 14. Preaching good news here is the verb yangalidzo. Yangalidzo. It's used in Luke in conjunction with Jesus' earthly ministry, even at Jesus' Jesus's birth time. You remember what the angels said? They use this word in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. One of the uh, Christmas angels said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you, what? Good news of a great joy, which shall be for all of the people. And then he goes on, For to you is born this day a Savior in Bethlehem. Well, Good news for the Jews has become good news for the entire world to be preached. And Paul is preaching it. And he's preaching the gospel next we see here in a little town called Derby. Derby is 35 miles southeast of Lystra, a couple of days journey by foot, maybe three days. This will become as far east as they would travel on this first missionary trip. This would be the point where they would make a turnaround, and they would backtrack, and they would come back the way that they came. The ministry at Derby was fruitful, and it says there were many converts. There were many that were disciples. Keep in mind, when in the book of Acts, it says they became disciples. That refers to believers. If you're a believer, you're a disciple, which means you're a learner and a follower of Jesus. If you're a disciple, that means you're a believer. There's no such thing as a disciple that's not a believer or a believer that's not a disciple. It comes the, the term making disciples comes from the verb math a tuo, which just means exactly that, to make someone become a learner and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that comes by preaching the gospel. Again, this reminds us of the agenda of the church. An agenda is what we organize to do. An agenda is what we put our collective efforts into. 
agenda is what we collect our monies to be able to accomplish. It's what our programs are about in church. Our agenda is to promote the gospel. Our agenda is to promote the sound doctrine that goes along with the gospel and to build churches and to multiply disciples all over the world. That's our agenda. Yes, we can talk on many topics from our classrooms, from this pulpit. There are many topics that we can preach on that the Bible speaks about in Christian education, in our classrooms, in our small groups, from this pulpit. Any issue the Bible talks about is is open, any issue at all, because God's righteousness touches every area of life. It touches our homes. It touches our country. It touches the way we work. It touches the way we um, we parent. It touches uh, so many different areas, our, our tongues, our behavior, our, our disciplines, and God speaks on many, many, many areas of life in a biblical worldview, in our morality, in our ethics. This is what we are commanded to teach. This is what we're commanded to preach. This is what this church uh, strives to do. Even when you take the Ten Commandments and you list them out and you begin thinking of how to apply the Ten Commandments, there are many applications, both in your personal life and in our culture, about the way life is supposed to be in a righteous way. And we are to speak on those. Just because we speak on an issue doesn't mean it's become an agenda in the church. Just because there's a topic that comes up and we preach what the Bible says about it does not at all mean, and I think this would be obvious, doesn't mean that all of a sudden we're going to spend all of our time and our money pursuing or talking about that one one area. Just because we speak on an issue does not mean it is the church's agenda. We have our agenda, and it's very clearly building churches, promoting the gospel, making disciples, and that's what we're dedicated to. That's what we have always been dedicated to here in this church. So being a biblical voice on all issues of the day, yes, that's open game. God commands it. Speak the full counsel of God's word. If it's in the Bible, preach on it. Speak on it. Teach on it. Clarify on it. Biblical voice, yes. Change the agenda, no. If you keep that simple distinction in your mind, you won't be confused. We are not here to fix all of the ills of society. That's not why church is here. It never was here to do that. And nowhere are they trying to improve the schools in Derby or the justice system in Derby or any of the other things that happened in those little towns. They came to do exactly what they were sent out by the Holy Spirit in Acts 13 to do, make disciples, start churches. And they did it. And they stayed faithful to that task. Those other things are not our calling. They're not our agenda. What do we do? We change lives one convert at a time. It's like Paul wrote, and he's even more narrow there in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. He was in prison, about to have his head chopped off, and so we know exactly what he believed. He said, it's, it's for the sake of the elect I endure all of the suffering that I have. I'm about to have my head cut off, and I did it to get the gospel to those that were elect, that the elect would be saved and be able to enter into eternal glory. He knew exactly what he was called to do, and he never deviated from that pathway. When someone believes the gospel, he's immediately born again. That person now is going to have a changed life if they're truly born again. And when their life changes, that is going to affect the way they live in every area of their life. So when they go back to the workplace or they go back in their relationship with their wife or they go back uh, to do something as a citizen of their country or they go back to the sports team they're a part of, because they're changed, they're going to be a positive influence for godly or righteous change in whatever relationships they have. We call those the spillover benefits of the gospel to the unsaved around us. It's a blessing to the unsaved to have saved, born-again workers in their workplace. 
you're a blessing for them. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about the world is not even worthy of righteous men. And yet that's what you are. You're a blessing to people, an undeserved blessing. And so when you, when you will refuse to, to act in a wrong way in your business because you have integrity, that is God changing your life. And that's the spillover benefits of his uh, common grace that is allowed to work through you. And there's hundreds and there's thousands and tens of thousands of believers. That's going to impact the society for good. That's still not the agenda of the church. That's what God may be using you to do in some area. God may put on your heart that you think that there's a, a, a bad situation and there's some people that are being abused or some animals are being mistreated or, or there's a polluted area. And you might take that upon yourself and say, you know, because of what I've learned in the word of God, I see something's not right. And, um, uh, God's laid this on me and I'm going to work in that area to make it, make it better. That's great. That's part of what God has done to change your life. But that does not make it the agenda of the church. That's not the church's agenda. That's not where our money goes. If we did those good things, we would end up neglecting the greater thing and we would end up disobeying our Lord Jesus Christ. Anytime a church makes lesser goals their aim, they disobey the Lord Jesus Christ. They become less and less potent and they end up dying in the ash heap of church history. Hope Bible Church must stick to gospel work. It's the smartest work. It's the most powerful work. It's the most strategic work because you can't change anything until you change a life. If you do change something in society and it doesn't come from people that are genuinely changed in their heart, then at best they'll be producing pharisaical righteousness, which does not please God. And at worst, it'll end up just fizzling anyways. Put the organization and the planning and the money and the leadership into the Great Commission, whether it is here or on another continent, local or foreign, it's all the same mission. Motion number two was evangelism. Motion number three, discipleship. And that's in verses 21 at the end until verse 23. They return to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, what a tough saying here, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every city, I'm sorry, in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now there's a lot in here. I'm only going to survey it. What happens when people believe well, at the heart of missions is establishing new converts, making disciples. We already talked about that from Matthew 28. Making disciples is the mission too. When they came back to these very same cities that they'd been persecuted in, they must have come in quietly. The focus of their ministry this next time was not the public proclamation of the gospel, but the private ministry of building up the disciples. They wanted those disciples that had just gotten saved and had just witnessed their leaders being persecuted to have spine, to have strength, to fortify their faith so they would not back down, so they would not walk away from Christ after they left town. And so they did discipleship to ground these believers. Now that discipleship is expressed in three ways, just real quickly. First, it says they strengthen the souls of the disciples. Well, souls need strengthening. We easily uh, become cowards when we're faced with a difficulty and we're told to obey, but we don't believe we can because it's dangerous. But they were, they were strengthened in their souls. That means they were teaching them how to stay true to Christ. 
Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16 is a prayer to God for the strengthening of souls in the inner man. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 17, God asks, I'm sorry, Paul asked God to comfort and strengthen the souls of the Thessalonian believers so they could do every good work and every good word. So they needed to be strengthened inwardly, but second, they encouraged them to continue in the faith. Now, why this? Because it would be easy to begin to believe and then turn your back. It'd be easy to start and say, oh, here's something new. This sounds interesting. Get excited about it. Have new friends. Get involved in new meetings, but then to fall back. To fall back. Remember, Jesus kept telling his disciples, abide in me. Don't turn around and leave me. Abide in me. Remain true to me. And here, that's they're saying the same thing. You know, continue in the faith. I'm so grateful that God hangs on to my soul and that I believe in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that God has hold of me because if it was up to me alone and God had said to me, continue in the faith, I know that my resolve would not be enough and your resolve would not be enough, but God hangs on to you. But the command nevertheless is to you. It is your responsibility to continue in the faith, to not turn your back on the Lord Jesus Christ and go back to paganism or go back into the world or go back to whatever it was before you came to faith. Many start, but not as many finish. And that's sad because the Bible says only those whose faith continues to the end will be saved. If you quit in the middle, you were never saved. Jesus makes this about as clear as he can be in John 8, 31 and 32, where he said to the Jews who claimed to have believed in him, if you continue in my word, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And so that's true. We have to continue on. Brothers and sisters, we are at a time, even though it's kind of quiet during this COVID crisis, which I think is a spiritually dangerous time where people can just dissipate and be alone and no one is watching over them and they quietly think they're doing fine and never getting together with other believers. And there's pride that can settle in. I can take care of myself. I don't need the gathering of the saints. I don't need anyone else's exhortation. And it's in that kind of a proud, neglected environment that souls fall away from God. Now, I know why we're doing it. I sympathize with that. I'm one of those most at risk with this virus. But I'm telling you, you need the comfort and the care and the strengthening of other believers. And if you don't believe that, you don't know yourself very well. We need to pray for each other and watch over. Strong warnings come from the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 13, just as one example. Encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, it says, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Boy, does sin get tricky. And then he concludes in verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. You got to believe and keep believing. Don't let Satan take advantage of this situation. And then third, they warned them through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. What does that tell you? In one sense, we're already in the kingdom of God because we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son, it says in Colossians. We're already part of the spiritual kingdom, but we haven't entered in the full manifestation of the blessed kingdom. We're not in it yet. There's still more to come. This verse makes that clear. We have to go through the times of tribulation And after we've gone through those pressing, distressful times, then we'll enter into the kingdom, you see. That's the only way in. There's no easy way in. There's no back door. If you're a believer 
and you're a godly person and you're in this world, you're going to be persecuted and it's going to be hard, but that's the pathway that God has chosen. Many tribulations before we get there. Jesus said the same thing. John 16, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace in the world. You have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Some Christians live with what I would call an overblown victory doctrine. That's what I call an overblown victory doctrine where they believe everything's supposed to be hunky-dory and great for the Christian down here. After all, we are children of the King and we're going to pray for things and claim things and only have victory. Well, Jesus had to go through tribulation all godly people have to go through tribulation, it says in 2 Timothy 3.12. So actually, it's the opposite. The godly are going to be attacked, and it's not always going to be easy for them. So when you sing those triumphant songs, which I like to, you know, the God of angel armies protects me, you just remember that though that's true, you are going to be attacked. You are going to be tested, and it will only be through many tribulations you enter the kingdom of God. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, with all the privileges of sonship, was said that he was turned over to the powers of darkness. Literally the words in Luke twenty two fifty three, 53, during the night that he was arrested and flogged and killed the next day. Now, another very important part of this discipleship was establishing churches with strong leaders. And so you can see here, they immediately appointed uh, elders, older men, older and more mature men for every single one of the churches. They selected or chose probably men who had already been elders from the Jewish synagogue that were now believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were the most mature they could find. They laid hands on them. It was a formal act of ordination. Actually, this is a very rich passage in the terminology of ordination that we don't have time to get into in detail, but they prayed with fasting. It shows that this was formal. It shows how serious it was. They commended the men and the churches to the care of God. They did everything they could to seal the churches with good leadership before they left so they would continue to teach the doctrines of Christ. And since they could not continue to be there for each of all these churches, they, had, they realized that, that the ultimately what these people in Derby and Lystra and Iconium had done is they had not believed in Paul and Barnabas they had not believed in the apostles in Jerusalem. Ultimately, they had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they turned them over to the care of the Lord Jesus Christ, who actually is the shepherd of us all. Amen? He's the great shepherd, the good shepherd, and he cares for all of us. And in the end, it's him that we've believed in, and it's his care that we are committed towards. And they knew that, and they did that as their final act of, of commending them and securing them in the most human way possible that you had to do to establish those churches. No one can protect a church from all dangers, but they did everything they could on that first missionary trip. Ultimately, the survival of that church would be in God's hands. In the book of Revelation, it sees the Lord Jesus taking very serious his role of taking care of the seven churches in Asia Minor. If you go to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1, and look through that first church at Ephesus, you see the image of Jesus walking among the seven lampstands, which are symbols of his churches. He's walking among them, and they're lit, and he's speaking to the churches, and he's warning them to repent of their sins, and he's even warning them that if they don't, he would remove their lampstand. He would remove their light. 
if they disobeyed him so much and refused to repent over time, the light that they were supposed to shine in that area would be put out. But he was there caring for his churches. He would never be abandoning his churches. He would always be interceding for his churches, even long after the apostles left. And so that's the third motion. And last, motion number four, cooperation. Cooperation, and that's from verse 24 to the end of the chapter. They, that's the apostles, passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, remember that? From which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. Verse 27, when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. So they retrace their steps. They go back to their home church of Antioch. You could get a good Bible map and it'll trace out the lines for you there through, the, through uh, Turkey and the, and the Mediterranean and back to the coast. Antioch being the home church in verse 26, they connect back with their home church. They went out, they preached, established churches, made disciples, established leaders, and they came back, and now they're regathering with the church that sent them out. This connection to the home church was very important to them. It's really more important than a lot of people realize. It's so important for churches to be working together. It's so important for churches to continue to support their missionaries. That is why there are fellowships of churches and denominations and mission agencies and home churches to all work together to get this mission accomplished. All of that organization and the training of the laborers and the prayer, it's all one mission working together in cooperation. The cooperation in the gospel is to be great indeed. In 3 John 7 and 8, it says how we ought to support such men so that we, we may be fellow workers with the truth. And here we see them cooperating with four actions. They commended them. They had the first action that already happened. They had commended them to the work that they had. And indeed, the apostles went out. God was with them. They accomplished the work. And now they came back, and second, it says when they arrived, they gathered the church together. They wanted the whole church to hear the report, not just the little mission agency, not just one small group. They wanted everybody to know what did God do. God had opened a door to the Gentiles. That's a summary statement. God had opened a door to the Gentiles. Everybody, listen, you know, now we have missionary reports and missionary letters and little cards we put up on the refrigerator and videos we stick up there and prayers we send. Why are we doing all of that? Because of the cooperation. Because we want everybody to know of the work. Their work is our work. Our work is their work. We're together. And the work is hard. They want us to, to enjoy what God did advancing the church, to hear about the converts, to hear about the new disciples. And then third, they gave the report. The third action is they gave the report. They told them everything. They told them all God had done. That was a long church service. On and on and on, story after story after story. Listen, what we get in chapters 13 and 14 of that first missionary journey is really just the summary. They had other stories to tell. And the people would have been going, wow. They would have been rejoicing. Miracles and the greater miracle, converts and the baptisms. 
people turning away from false gods to the living God. And open door to the Gentiles. That's really the main message. And you know that open door metaphor really speaks, doesn't it? God opened the door, big, giant, hard door to get through. People believing false things. And here God used the gospel and we got through that door and look what God did. Look what God did. And Paul in his letters would ask people to pray for an open door. And he would talk about a wide open door that was there for him. That's exciting. God is working. And those are the missionary reports that we give that tell us the flavor of the ministry. By the way, I love Lisa's writings in her newsletter. She's very creative. And she draws us in to the life of what's happening in Africa, how the ministry goes, how hospital work and evangelism work go together in their life. And it's great to enter into that with them. And then the last thing, and we'll close with this, is it says they spent a long time with the disciples. Now you could read that and miss how important that is. This was their home church. They loved the people in their home church. They didn't just show up and say, hey, okay, our report's done. Turn out the lights, we're gone. They fellowshiped with their home church. They loved their home church. They were strengthened by their home church. And they themselves did strengthening. They rejoiced together. All of them were fellow workers in the gospel. And that's what this needs to be for the Reesmans. Their home on furlough. This is their church. There are new faces here. You don't know them. They've been gone for a few years. You need to learn them. Some of the ones they did know are gone. But we're all one church. And we need to refresh them and learn from them and benefit from them. Because their work is our work. And not just them, but others as well. Amen? This is our work together. This is the mission. This is what we're called to do. And so the first missionary journey of the famous apostle Paul has come to the end. But there'll be other missionary journeys, so stay tuned.